The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. If the Lord had not been on our side, that has to be our first thought when we sing that song. Reminds me of this quote from J.C. Ryle. We were singing Service of the King a moment ago, then we sing The Power of the Cross. J.C. Ryle said, A single day in hell will be worse than a whole life spent carrying the cross. A single day in hell will be worse than a whole life carrying the cross. Let's open our Bibles, if you would please, to Revelation chapter 20. And we are continuing our study of the delusion of the devil, and we have come to the end, not today, but we will conclude next Sunday morning. I began this series early in November uh, with the purpose of awakening you to the danger of the great enemy of our souls. Uh, it's to help you to understand that we don't have any defense against the devil. And if not by the grace of God, if God had not been on our side, then surely we would be lost forever and doomed to hell. But we do need to understand that, that God is on our side and God is willing to help us if we'll just call on him. And that's the only help that we do have is to call upon the name of the Lord. We're not able to defeat Satan in our own power because Satan is second only to God in his power. But I do have to add this, that Satan is a far distant second. In fact, there is no comparison between the power of God and the power of Satan. God is uncreated. God is eternal. Whereas Satan is a created being, he's not eternal. He is subject to his maker. And as I mentioned in earlier messages, Satan can't do anything without God's permission. And so, in effect, Satan is actually an agent to do the plans and the purposes of God. Because God says that he can take all evil and he can turn it to our good. Evil doesn't make God shy away. God's not afraid of evil in the world. He can take care of all of that, and he will. Nothing happens without the plans and the purposes of God. Now, since Satan is against God, he faces punishment for his sin. God is always holy and just, and his justice says that all sin must be punished. Uh, Satan will pay for his crimes, and so will all who follow him. And in this text, we find his demise. He's sent to the place of punishment. And after Revelation 20, verse number 10, there is no more devil to infect God's perfect world. So we look at Revelation chapter 20 and verse number 10, and the devil that deceived them, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. 
And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, since we've spent many, many weeks talking about Satan, I thought that it would be appropriate for us to take a look at the place of eternal punishment where Satan is going to be. And this is very important because it says in verse number 10 that Satan is cast into the lake of fire and of brimstone. And then in verse number 15, it says that everyone who follows Satan, who is guilty of sin, everyone who stands at the judgment is going to receive the same punishment. And so the obvious conclusion of this is if we describe the place where Satan is going, then we are also describing the place where all unbelievers go in their rejection of Jesus Christ. Now, Satan doesn't want you to know what you face if you ignore the salvation that's found in Christ. And since he's not able to keep you from knowing about hell, because I think just about everybody, well, most people have some idea that there is a hell, there's something that's coming afterwards, and surely if you've been in a Christian church or most Christian churches, you've heard something about hell. So Satan can't stop you from hearing about hell, but he can distort what hell is all about. He can distort what hell really is, and he can confuse people about who is actually going to hell. Now, if there's one thing that you never want to forget, it is this, that there, is, there are consequences for the way that you live. You're going to give an account to God for the way that you live because God has a record of everything that you've done, everything from the beginning of your life, everything you do has been recorded in God's books, and God is going to use that to judge you and to determine your punishment. Now, you also need to know that no one is going to escape judgment. No one has ever met God's perfect standard of righteousness. And so it's just plain and simple that as a sinner, someone who's not trusted in Christ, if you are not a believer in him, you are going to be judged for your sins. Now, hell and judgment are doctrines that must be taught side by side with the gospel of Christ. And if there should be someone who says, well, you know what Pastor Smith ought to do? He really needs to preach more evangelistic sermons and not spend 12, 13 weeks talking about hell and the devil. And I would just tell you that it's impossible for me to preach a gospel message without bringing hell into the picture because that's exactly what we're being saved from. And this is what people need to know. People need to know that they need salvation, which naturally implies there is something to be saved from, that there is an impending danger that we need to do something about. The Bible says we need to do something about it now because today is the day of salvation. There's just too much danger for people to wait. Salvation is now because we want to be delivered from the danger of being held precariously over the pit of hell where we are ready to fall in at any moment. As I've said several times in our study, only one breath, your last breath, separates you from an eternity in hell if you don't know Jesus Christ. So we must take care of this. We face the wrath of God for sin, and to be saved is to be saved from his wrath. And so a gospel without hell is not actually a gospel at all. Because we're not being saved from poverty. And we're not being saved from our depression. We're not being saved from our family problems. We're not being saved from low self-esteem. We're being saved from the wrath of God. And all of us need that. Now the true gospel is a gospel of repentance. It's the recognition of how bad that we truly are. How bad we are and how that we've broken God's holy law. It's recognition that our punishment is deserved. We deserve to go to hell. 
And it's only by the grace of God that He allows us to escape that awful place by believing in His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, our subject today is hell, the place where Satan and sinners will spend eternity apart from God. Now, this is the third part of your outline, which is the conclusion of judgment. And this follows our first part, which was the inclusion in the judgment, which is all unbelievers. Next, we talked about the criteria for judgment, which is information that's contained in the Bible and in the records of our work that we have done, and also the names that are in the book of life. And now comes the conclusion of judgment. What is the result of it? Well, the end of this judgment is punishment that is prescribed by the righteous judge. The great white throne that's described in this passage is not a place to determine if people are going to hell because everybody who's at this judgment is destined for hell. This doesn't determine heaven or hell. All at this judgment are already condemned. And you might note that Jesus said this, that when he came into the world, he said, I didn't come to condemn the world, I came to save the world. He said the world is already condemned. John 3:18 He that believeth Jesus said he that believeth on him is not condemned but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And so if you happen to be you end up at this judgment you are there because you do not have faith in Christ. Nothing changes here. You're already condemned and this judgment is for the purpose of determining the extent of your punishment. Now let's review for just a moment what we talked about last week, and that is the degrees of punishment in hell. Everyone at this judgment is a condemned sinner, but not all of them have sinned alike. Not all of them have the same knowledge of God. Not all of them have heard of Jesus Christ. There's some who haven't heard of Him at all. There's some who've never even seen a Bible. But those people also go to hell because... They sin against the light that they have. They sin against the innate knowledge that God has put into the heart to know that there is a God, to know the difference between right and wrong, that there's things that you do that you should and things that you shouldn't. And they sin against that, and so they're guilty. And they must go to hell because they have sinned against God, but they are not going to be judged for the rejection of Christ because they've never heard of Jesus Christ. For example, uh, someone in this congregation who has heard of Jesus... You hear the messages, you've heard of Jesus, you are going to be judged more severely than a man in the jungle who carves an idol out of wood and bows before it and calls that his God. You're going to be judged in a greater degree than that person who has never heard about Jesus Christ. Now this is especially important for you because the very last thing that you would want and this is one of the things that we do when we preach to the church. We want to warn our own church members that the very last thing that you would want to be is a pretender sitting in the pew. The very last thing that you would want to be is someone who claims to know Jesus Christ. You come and you hear, but you don't actually know Him. And this is kind of a paradox that we have that coming to a church like this can be the best thing that ever happened to you or it can be the worst thing that ever happened to you. It's the best thing if you hear about Christ and you believe in Him, but it is the worst thing that's ever happened to you if you go away without trusting Christ as the Savior. And so that's a peculiar thing about a visit to our church. The difference is, what do you do with the message that you hear? Well, today I want to 
move on from judgment and the degrees of punishment to talk to you now about the destination of punishment. And this is the part where I want to discuss with you this awful place that is called hell. This is the result of the judgment of verses 11 through 15. And what we want to talk about some today is what is hell like? And I'll tell you before I even start that I can't describe it to you. I could never touch how bad that hell is. No one can. Many preachers try, have tried. We'll talk about that a little bit next week as we take just a few moments to look at Jonathan Edwards' great sermon on sinners in the hands of an angry God. And he did a great job of trying to describe hell, but truly none of us can really give the right kind of description of it. We can't tell how bad that hell is. Now, the Bible does have quite a bit to say about it. It's hard to believe that preachers would ever want to leave hell out of their sermons when most of the things that we know about hell came from the greatest teacher of the Christian faith and the founder of the Christian faith, who is Jesus Christ himself. He's the one that talked the most about hell. And for a preacher to say, I don't want to preach about it, and not to model his sermons after that perfect teacher of our faith, that, that is just an unconscionable mistake. Not only is it a mistake, but it's terribly sinful, a sinful mistake, and it's even a soul-damning mistake for people not to hear about hell, to know about this place. And then if for no other reason the hell ought to be preached that it's such a terrible place, it's because Satan is going to be there. That ought to tell you, give you some idea of how bad that it must be that God has chosen this place to punish the great enemy of the soul, the one who has opposed God from the very beginning, who's, who has set the world on a course of sin and this punishment that we're talking about here. Hell must be a terrible place because Satan is going to be there. Now we're going to talk about hell, the terrible punishment of hell, but before we do, we need to do just a little bit of maintenance work with the terminology. Verse number 14 says, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Now you can see that there must be a difference between hell and the lake of fire. After the judgment, those that are in hell are then cast into the lake of fire. Now most of the time, we just say hell. Some of you say it too often. and You're not really talking about this. But most of the time, we just combine the whole thing. We just call it all hell. But strictly speaking, that's not correct. Hell is most often translated from the word Hades, and it refers to the place of lost souls where they go immediately upon death to await judgment. Hell, we might say, is like a holding place for disembodied spirits. And just prior to the judgment, God is going to resurrect the bodies of lost, and he will bring them out of Hades, out of hell, out of this holding place, and he'll join the spirit and the body together, and the bodies will be changed to be able to endure eternal punishment in the lake of fire. And so in other words, their bodies are going to be made to suffer in that fire, but not to be consumed. So Hades and the lake of fire are different places, but they are much alike in character. One is the temporary place where the soul goes for punishment until the judgment. And then the other place is the permanent place where soul and body are put together and then thrown in to that lake of fire. Now, some do believe that Hades and the lake of fire are the same place, that the only difference is the disposition of the person 
before and after the judgment. Before the judgment, they are in hell as a disembodied spirit. After the judgment, the soul and body are put back together, made fit for punishment, and then put back into hell, which is the lake of fire, and all of it's the same thing. I'm not going to strenuously disagree with somebody who holds that opinion. We just want to understand this, that whether we're talking about hell, the lake of fire, we're talking about something that is horrible, something that is terrible, the punishment that God has uh, ordained should happen to those who are unbelievers. Now, hell in the New Testament is translated from three different words. One of them is used only once in Scripture, that's 2 Peter 2, verse number, 20, uh, verse number 4. But the other two are used often, the first of which is Hades that I've just mentioned, uh, it's called hell. But the majority of the times that Jesus spoke about hell, he wasn't using the term Hades, but he used the word Gehenna. And I'm, I preached on this uh, some uh, years ago as we were going through the Matthew series, not all that long ago, and we talked about this word Gehenna. Now, there, there, are only, uh, or there are very many examples of it, but let me just give you four that are used in Scripture. Jesus used this uh, term Gehenna. Matthew 10, 28, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell, that is, in Gehenna. Now that verse fits the description that I gave you just a moment ago. First you have the soul that's in hell, then you have body and soul that are being punished and cast into the lake of fire. In Matthew 23, verse 15, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell, of Gehenna, than you yourselves. Matthew 23, 33, Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell, Gehenna? Luke 12, 5, But I will forewarn you, whom ye shall fear, fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell, that is, into Gehenna. Yes, I say unto you, fear him. Now, in each of those cases, Jesus used this word Gehenna, which is really an interesting word. It actually means the valley of Hinnom. And the reason that Jesus used Gehenna is because of the historical context. And in the valley of Hinnom, Jesus found a visual demonstration of the doctrine that he taught. And he showed that this valley of Hinnom had the characteristics of hell. Well, let's take a look for a minute at the historical context of it. Uh, if you would, turn to the book of Joshua. In Joshua, uh, the location of the valley is given in Joshua chapter 15. After the conquest of Canaan, Joshua divided the land between the tribes of Israel. And in this chapter, he gave the survey of the borders of Judah, the tribe of Judah. And in Joshua 15, verse number 8, he tells us where this border went. And he says, And the border went up by the valley of the son of Hinnom unto the south side of the Jebusite, the same as Jerusalem. And the border went up to the top of the mountain that lieth before the valley of Hinnom westward, which is at the end of the valley of the giants northward. So the valley of Hinnom is on the south side of Jerusalem, actually a little bit southwest. And throughout the history of the Old Testament, this valley had a very, very sordid history. God gave Israel a command in Leviticus 18.21. He said, Thou shalt not let any of thy seed pass through the fire to Molech, neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God. I am the Lord. Now, I want you to keep that command in mind. 
because this is talking about a practice of the Ammonites. The Ammonites sacrificed their children to their God by throwing them in the fire. Israel did what God told them not to do. They began to mix in with these heathen tribes, these heathen people that were in Canaan, and they began to worship the false gods of those heathens, and they ended up in terrible sin. And you need to let that be a warning to you to choose your friends wisely, because if you choose unbelievers as your friends, you're going to end up acting like an unbeliever. That's what Israel did. Now, just to give you an idea how terrible this practice was, Francis Schaeffer described it this way. He said, according to one tradition, there was an opening at the back of the brazen idol, and after a fire was made within it, each parent had to come and with his own hands place his firstborn child in the white-hot, outstretched arms of Molech. According to this tradition, the parent was not allowed to show emotion, and drums were beaten so the baby's cries could not be heard as the baby died in the arms of Molech. Isn't that almost inconceivable to think that the people of God would do such as this? But they did. Here's what happened in Second Corinthians or Second Kings, rather, verse 17. And they left all the uh, chapter 17. They left all the commandments of the Lord their God and made them molten images, even two calves, and made a grove and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they caused their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire and use divination and enchantments and sold themselves, sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Now in the time of good King Josiah, Israel had long forgotten what was in the laws of God. And they had forgotten about what God said in Leviticus. And then Josiah found the book of the law, and he had that read. The book of the covenant, he had it read to the people. And he began to institute reforms. And what Josiah did was to uh, stop the Baal worship that was in Israel. He had all the vessels of Baal removed from the temple and thrown out. He threw out the priest of Baal, and then he cut down the groves. These are the high places where they put idols amongst the trees. And so he went there, he cut down all the groves, he tore down all the idols, and he burned them all in the fire. And then he took another step. 2 Kings 23, verse 10. And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the children of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter to pass through the fire to Molech. And he defiled Topheth. Topheth is in the valley of Hinnom. It's next to the holy city of Jerusalem. And that's the place where these human sacrifices were made. And that valley was notorious because that was a place of demon worship. Fires were always burning there. Sacrifices were always being made. Their children thrown into the fire and the screaming that went on there. A torturous place right next to the city of Jerusalem. The holy city of God where the temple of God was. Well, now let's go over to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 7. And this is a few years after Josiah's reforms. And Jeremiah received a prophecy from God. God spoke to him. And he said, here is what's going to happen because of sin, of this particular sin. Jeremiah 7, verse number 25. God speaks to Jeremiah and he said, Since the day that your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt unto this day, I have even sent unto you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. Yet they hearkened not unto me, nor inclined their ear, but hardened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. 
Therefore thou shalt speak all these words unto them, but they will not hearken to thee. Thou shalt also call unto them, but they will not answer thee. But thou shalt say unto them, This is a nation that obeyeth not the voice of the Lord their God, nor receiveth correction. Truth is perished, and is cut off from their mouth. Cut off thine hair, O Jerusalem, and cast it away, and take up lamentation on high places. For the Lord hath rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. For the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, saith the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to pollute it. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my heart. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall be called, it shall no more be called Topheth, nor the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they shall bury in Topheth till there be no place. And the carcasses of this people shall be meat for the fowls of heaven and for the beasts of the earth, and none shall fray them away. Then will I cause to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall be desolate. And the result of that prophecy was that Judah went into captivity in Babylon. The temple was torn down. The walls of the city of Jerusalem were torn down. And it was for the sin of sacrificing to false gods in the valley of Hinnom and making their children go through those fires. Now we fast forward more than 500 years to the time of Jesus. Then the temple had been rebuilt. The valley of Hinnom was still there. And by this time, Israel was no longer worshiping idols. They got the picture. They learned their lesson by that captivity in Babylon for those years. They learned not to do that again, and so they were very strict about not burning their children in fires and not being monotheistic in their worship. They didn't worship heathen gods then. Now, the reputation of the Valley of Hinnom was a despicable place to them. They knew what had happened there, and so they converted the Valley of Hinnom into something else, to another use. They turned it into a landfill. They turned it into the garbage dump of Jerusalem. And they hated it so badly that all the refuse from the city was taken out and thrown into that valley. And then also all the human waste that came out of the city was funneled into the valley of Hinnom. The bodies of criminals were thrown in there without being given proper burial. Street people and beggars were thrown into the valley of Hinnom. That wasn't a Jewish custom, but that's what the Romans did. They were in control of this. And so there in that valley of Hinnom, there was fire that was burning. It was the garbage dump. In that valley is the smell of rotting flesh, of putrid waste. Fires kept burning day and night and never went out because the garbage was ever-present. It was always there. Fires never went out. And so in Hinnom, Jesus found a visual demonstration for his teaching about hell. He was standing there with people and just saying, look out there, look in the valley of Hinnom at the fires. One writer said that hell is God's cosmic dump, the filth of all the world, Christ, rejectors, sinners, demons, Satan himself are thrown into hell, that cosmic dump. And whenever you think of hell, don't restrict your thinking to just fire. 
It's much, much worse than that. Think of all the nastiness. Think of the filth of that place. Think of the stench of it, the putrefying odors, the, the open sores, the burning flesh, the excrement of life. It's all there in hell, and it's there for all of eternity. And when you get that picture in your mind, then you start to get a picture of how God sees sin. And you see how terrible that sin is, and you see what God thinks of sinners. We think that we're pretty good. We're not really all that bad, but God has a much different picture from that because He compares us to that valley of Hinnom with all the filth and the waste that's in that valley. And God says, this is what I think of you. This is what I think of your sin. This is why you need to be saved. And I know that none of us want to hear that because we don't believe that about ourselves. But that's what the Bible says about us. And that's why this awful place called hell has been prepared for those who do not believe because this is how God sees it. So what is hell like? Well, that's the background here for Jesus' teachings on the subject. It's a valley. They can see and they can smell. They have an idea of what he's talking about. So what did Jesus say about this place? What about hell? Well, first, he talks to them about the length of punishment. The length of it. Let's switch from the Old Testament to the New and go to the book of Mark, chapter 9. Jesus was very good at painting visual images of the supernatural world. So how is he going to describe hell? Well, he uses a comparison. He compares it to things that they can see. So he says, look out there. Now, he's using the word hell. It's what we read in the King James Version. But you can just translate that in your mind to Gehenna, Valley of Hinnom. So whenever he says hell, it's Valley of Hinnom. That's what they have in their mind. That's what they see. Mark 9, verse 42. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believeth in me... It is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. To go in where? Gehenna. Into that valley of Hinnom, in the fire that never shall be quenched. Where their worm dieth not, the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, and, the, uh, and it's better for thee to enter to halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Now there they have that picture in their mind, worms, worms that don't die, the worm that never dies. What's that mean? Well, that's a reference to the maggots that crawled over the ever-present garbage. They're there because there's always a food supply, all the rottenness and all that going on. And Jesus used that to show that hell is an eternal place, that activity never stops in hell. Punishment never stops because the fires never go out. People in hell are given bodies that cannot be consumed, and so hell has continual fuel for burning. It always has fuel for burning. Jerusalem never ran out of garbage, and that's the point that Jesus is making here. There's always a fire burning there. The last part of verse 48 says, the fire is not quenched. And so Jesus could point to the valley, and he'd say, Gehenna! He couldn't have given them a better visual demonstration of the meaning so he looked at that valley and he says, Behold your hell. Well, how long is hell going to last? 
Well, in our text, verse number 10 says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. There's our answer. Hell is forever. That's how long. Well, you say, well, that talks about the devil. Maybe the devil's going to be there forever. Oh, but listen to this. Revelation 14, verse 11. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. So followers of Satan, all unbelievers, receive the same eternal punishment as him. Now we think about that, we look at that, and we say, why does hell have to be forever? It seems so extreme. Why does hell have to be everlasting? Why doesn't it end? We're going to talk more about that next week. I'm going to give you some theological proofs for why hell has to be forever. But let's think about this for just a minute. One of the problems in trying to figure out why hell is forever is the incompetence that we have to assess how much punishment we actually deserve and how God sees sin, how bad that sin is. Edward Donnelly wrote, Contemporary society is in a state of ethical chaos. Imagine a group of young professionals enjoying a meal in any big city restaurant. Not an eyebrow will be raised if someone mentions that they have recently had an abortion. A reference by another to their same-sex partner will elicit no disapproval. But if one of the party were to light a cigarette in a no-smoking section of the restaurant, shock, horror, unanimous disgust. Is exhaling tobacco smoke more reprehensible than sexual perversion and killing an unborn child? Are such people competent to make moral judgments to decide how God should deal with sin? They can't even distinguish between wickedness and bad manners. What else does Jesus teach about hell? The length of punishment and also the languishing of punishment. Matthew 13, 41, The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. In the 49th verse, So it shall it be at the end of the world, the angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. They're cast into a furnace of fire. Now, combining hell with the gospel was introduced by the man that Jesus called the greatest prophet that ever lived. That's John the Baptist. Matthew 3 John said, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, can you miss the fact that God is the one who punishes people in hell? He will burn up the chaff in a fire that is never quenched. Now, we notice here that the Holy Spirit relates to hell. Sometimes it talks about Jesus, and he's speaking this. He relates, or not this particular verse, but the others that we read. He speaks of hell. At times it talks about God the Father in relation to hell, which shows us we can study hell and find out about the Trinity of God. All of them that are involved in this punishment. Hell is an unstoppable fire. It's a... 
It's a terrible torment, pain and suffering like no one has ever experienced. You know, some people look at what they're going through here, and people go through some terrible things, tough stuff sometimes, and you'll hear somebody say, I'm going through hell. We don't have any idea. We have no idea what hell is like. We're talking here about relentless suffering, suffering that a normal body can't endure. People in hell are continually crying and wailing because of pain. And you know what happens when a person gets burned in a fire. Fire destroys nerve endings. A burn, uh, a burn is one of the most painful things that you can feel, isn't it? I mean, that's one of the worst things that can happen to you is to be burned. Um, this is why many Christian martyrs were burned at the stake, just simply this, because that's the worst that they could do to them. That's the worst pain that could be inflicted upon a person to burn them in a fire. But as horrible as those deaths were, and as bad as being burned in a fire is, at some point it's over. I mean, you're through with it. You're done with it. But when in hell, it's never over. And the body has been made specifically for this type of suffering. This is a body that can experience pain forever. There aren't any nerve endings that are destroyed. It's always pain. We're never dulled towards the pain, or people aren't. The pain is always acute in hell. Jesus also said there's gnashing of teeth. Now, interestingly, gnashing of teeth with, or grinding of teeth, that's a sign of anger. Remember, that's what they did when Stephen preached the gospel and he convicted them and they were so angry, they began to gnash at their teeth and they soon picked up stones and they stoned Stephen. Now, can you imagine what Jesus is telling us here is that in hell, anger is going to be directed towards God. Hell is a place of anger. Hell is a place where nobody ever repents. No one in hell ever changes their mind because God is not there to change their mind. Their depravity, their inability to repent and come to Him is gone. And, it, it, I mean, the depravity is there. There is no ability to repent, so hell has to be perpetual. And imagine the rage these people have as thoughts come streaming back to them that, that Satan said, live it up, do what you want, do your own man. Don't let anybody tell you what to do, do your own thing. And that's what they did. They listened to Satan's lies and they did their own thing. Now they're doing God's thing. And that is to suffer in hell eternally. They're fools who listen to Satan. Imagine those thoughts of, of sorrow and remorse, of lost opportunities, of gospel messages that have been preached, of Bibles that have been sent, of preachers who warn them. And all of those warnings go unheeded because of the stubbornness of those who will not believe. There is weeping there. There's uncontrollable sobbing, eternal crying. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt so bad that you cried and you thought that your heart was going to burst? That you felt so alone and you just grieved over something and you were inconsolable? This weeping is described as bitter sorrow. And the word that Jesus used here is loud, wailing, and inconsolable misery. These are people that God has shown them the goodness of His grace their entire lives. He gives them breath to breathe and food to eat and places to live and jobs to support them. And here they are, after all of that, as people who are God-haters. They end up in hell because they wouldn't listen to Him. They hate God, even though He supplied them with everything that they need. And so now they think back on that and what inconsolable misery there must be to think, I could have stepped right through into heaven. And here I am languishing in the fires of hell. 
And then there's more to their misery of the suffering. They languish because of the darkness of hell. Matthew 22:13. then said the king to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jude wrote about false prophets and said they're reserved the blackness and darkness forever. I don't know how you have fire without light. But that's the way it is in hell. God's able to do it. In the very beginning, God said, let there be light. And here at the end, in hell, God says, let there be no light. Hell is complete darkness. Darkness comes upon the face of the abyss. And there is no company in hell because of that darkness. Oh, you hear people say all the time, well, it's okay if I go to hell. All my friends are there. All my family is there. I'll have a big reunion, and they think that hell is a place of reunion. No, hell is not a place of reunion. Hell is a place of darkness. Now, I, I might tell you this, that hell is a vast place with plenty of room for everybody that's going, and it's dark, and people hear cries coming out of the darkness, and they don't know where those cries come from. That could be what hell is. But artists have, uh, have pictured hell in a different way, that hell is a very crowded place. That hell is a place where there are bodies on top of bodies. That people don't know who's there because of the darkness. Your friends might be on some other heap. And because these bodies are in such close proximity to one another, laying on top of each other, and they're in this pain and this torment of hell, that they begin to gnash on each other with their teeth. They hate being there. And they hate God because He's put them there. Oh, in hell, there's no love. In hell, there's no one who says, I want to be there with my friends. In hell, there's no one who says, this is a good place for us to go to meet with one another and be together. No, hell is a place when you get there, you don't want anybody else to be there. The rich man lifted up his eyes in hell and pleaded with Abraham to send back Lazarus to warn his brothers that he would not come to that awful place. Darkness in hell. Complete darkness in hell. And then another aspect of the languishing is the despair of hell. Alexander Pope wrote, Hope springs eternal in the human breast. That's a nice thought, but it's not biblical. Hope is not eternal. It might surprise you to learn there's no hope in heaven. There isn't any hope in heaven. Why? Because all hope has been realized. Everything that you ever want is there. All the hope that you ever had is there. It's all been realized. Romans 8.24 says, For we are saved by hope. But hope is that hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? Paul says, you're going to realize your hope when you get to heaven. There's no reason for hope there. Hope is not eternal for people in heaven. Neither is it eternal for people in hell. Because there is no hope in hell. Hope is not for eternity. Hope is for this life, whether you're talking about heaven or hell. In hell, there is no hope. In hell, there's only despair. People have hope if there's possibility of getting out. There is no possibility of getting out. It's very interesting statements made in Revelation 14. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, and in the presence of the Lamb. Listen to this. God is there, but God is not there. The only hope that you have is God, and if God is not there, you don't have any hope. God is only there to observe punishment under His watchful eyes. 
Albert Barnes wrote, it will be no small aggravation of the punishment of the wicked that it will occur in the very presence of their slighted, rejected Savior. God forgets about people in hell. He doesn't give them any more thought. People in heaven don't think about people in hell. Hell is a bad thing to think about. So heaven's not, nothing but good thoughts. So nobody in heaven's going to think about people that are in hell. Hell is a place of eternal despair. I think Dante had it right when he wrote Paradise Lost, and he said there's a placard in hell that says, All hope abandon ye who enter here. No hope in hell. One last thought for today, and this accentuates the languishing and hopelessness of despair in hell, and that is the location of punishment. Where is hell? It's a good question, isn't it? Where is this place? The Bible doesn't actually tell us. Some people suppose that hell is in the center of the earth. You go down to hell, you go down to Hades, and so they say hell is in the center of the earth. Now we have to be careful how we interpret up and down when we talk about heaven. Up and down are just relative terms for heaven and hell. Up and down speaks of the separation between the two. Where does up meet down? Can you locate that? Is that a specific place where up meets down? Well, we're given the idea of up and down as places that never meet. So heaven and hell are so far apart from each other, they never meet. Where does east meet the west? Well, there's no place where east meets the west, not a defined place. God removes our sins, he says, as far as the east is from the west. And that point again is that uh, God removes things so far away from us that we'll never see it again. And when you apply that to hell, the same thing is true. It's so far away, nobody ever sees it again. Now, we're gonna, now, it is a definite place. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we don't know the location of it. Matthew 7, 22, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. So you see the location? Hell is apart from God. Wherever hell is, God is not. That's a little bit perplexing to us because we believe that God is omnipresent. So what did Jesus mean when he said depart? How are you ever going to get out of the presence of God? God fills all things. So how is it that God is not in hell? Well, what this actually means is that God removes all recognition of his helping presence all that's taken away from their minds. All they know is that God has left, has left them in hell. He's gone, and he's not coming back. He locked them away, and he's not coming back. He threw away the key. They don't feel anything from God but wrath. He doesn't consider them. He doesn't take care of them. There's no concern for them. And if you think that's not God, you need to read the Scriptures again. This is the God that we serve. God forgets. The sins of the saved remove them as far as the east is from the west. And in the same way, he forgets the loss. It's just like the east is from the west. So do you see what happens? And this is the warning I want to leave with you today. Do you see what happens if you end up at the judgment of Revelation 20? There is no hope. These people died without Christ. And eternal punishment in hell is the result. The location of hell is eternal separation from God. He's gone. He's not coming back. He watches the punishment, but there is no hope of it ending 
No hope of his presence there. Now this is what hell should do. The doctrine of hell should do for you. If you don't know Christ, then the doctrine of hell should drive you to the feet of the Savior. The doctrine of hell should tell you that if you don't do something about this now, that you face this horrible danger of that terrible place. And you could die at any moment and you will go there. There's only one of two places to go, heaven or hell. If you don't know Jesus Christ, that place is hell. So that's what it does for the lost. It, it, understanding the doctrine of hell drives you to Jesus Christ. But then it does something else for those that are saved. The doctrine of hell should drive you and me to warn people that are going there, to warn family and friends, to preach the gospel of Christ to people and help them to understand this awful place called hell. And we don't really have a vision of that, I don't think. And I'm guilty of it, you're guilty of it. We don't really see hell as it really is, because if we did, we would be out there pleading with people to come to Jesus Christ. What we need to do is to ask God to lay it upon our hearts, the terrible place called hell, because our friends, our family, they're going there, and it's going to be awful for them. And it's terrible to have a loved one die and go to hell. The best thing that you can ever do for anybody is give them the gospel of Christ, have them believe that gospel. Ask God to save them. Don't leave them without the message of Jesus Christ. If we can't get that vision of hell, we're not biblical. We're not giving the gospel if we don't have that vision of hell, the terrible place that it is. And so I'm telling you as Christians, we need to warn people. We need to give them the gospel. The road to hell is altered in only one way, repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Isn't it a shame that we have so much trouble getting people to come to church? Our own church members sometimes, we have to plead with them to come to the services, to be in church, to act like a Christian, to live like God would have them to live. It's a constant thing with the people of God. The Bible is given to us here with, with so many things that are written just to people that are saved to tell them how to live in front of the lost in order to lead them to Jesus Christ. And we have so much trouble getting God's people to live that way. And so we go to work, we go to different places, we go to the mall, the way we dress, the way that we talk, the friends that we have, the things that we, how we entertain the things of God. We just don't understand what hell is like. And we've got to return to the preaching of the gospel that includes a hell for people that are dying in a place that are never going to be any relief for it. Eternity hangs in the balance. And we just don't do it. I don't understand, but we're all guilty of this, but I don't understand why we have to plead with God's people to go to church. We've got to find the right gate. We've got to go the narrow way. Exit the broad road of destruction now by trusting Jesus Christ because the end is the fires of hell if you don't know him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you confessing our sin, all of us, of really not knowing what hell is about when there's so much information given in Scripture. Jesus was vivid in his descriptions of it, looking at that valley of Hinnaman, showing the fires that were burning, the garbage, the stench, the worms, maggots crawling over everything, fire that will never be put out. 
Jesus wanted to show them something, wanted to put some in front of their eyes that would urge them to try to avoid that awful place. And then preaching it to the disciples and telling them what to do, telling them to go and preach the gospel with the, on their minds this terrible valley that they knew about and where people are going to die. And those, those apostles caught that vision of Jesus and they kept at it until the day that they died, warning people about this awful place called hell. Lord, put that on our hearts. Put it on our hearts to preach the gospel that includes hell, showing people how to avoid the wrath of God. God, have mercy on our souls if we skip hell when we tell people the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for your people. Bless us today as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You ever wonder why preachers don't preach about hell? It's not really hard to figure out, I don't think. Most of you probably do know why preachers don't preach about it. People don't want to hear about it. That's number one. Number two, we want to attract enough people by telling them good things. Uh, We want to let them think that they can escape hell, become members of the church, get saved, never having to deal with their sin. So they can go ahead and live just like they lived before. And there are a lot of people that don't want to come to Christ because that's such a hard life. Doing what you do, going to church and every Sunday and reading the Bible and giving up all the things that I like to do, all of this, these, 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 this stuff that I, ha- I have to, you know, I have to give all that up to be a Christian. And we're tempted to say, no, you don't have to give up anything to be a Christian. And we just believe, believe, believe. That's all you got to do to be a Christian. Do you notice how Jesus approached or the, uh, the rich man, the rich young ruler? He didn't tell him, just believe. What did he say? Go sell everything you have and give to the poor. Why did he tell him that? Because he knew that's the hardest thing he'd have to do. And he wasn't willing, ready to come to Christ in true faith until he was ready to surrender everything to Jesus Christ. But what we've done has reduced the gospel to say nothing at all about sin, no repentance in it. You just get a wonderful life. You trust Christ, you have a wonderful life, and you go on just like you are. You enjoy your sin. Well, you can't do that. Not according to Scripture. People say, it's too hard if I become a Christian. What did, we, what did J.C. Ryle say? A single day in hell is worse than an entire life carrying the cross. Oh, people are going to find that out. and They're going to say, I, w- I wish I'd done it. I wish I'd obeyed. I wish I'd given up my sin. I wish I had followed Jesus Christ. One day in hell is worse than an entire life of serving the Lord. We've got to preach that message. You've got to let people know. Repent of your sins. That can't be left out of the gospel. Let's preach that. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.